0: Heavenly Father, we thank You that You are the great Creator, Lord Jesus, Holy Spirit. We thank You that You have given us power to understand Your Word. Thank You for the record of Your people in the Old Testament. And we ask that You would guide us now as we think together about this story of the Israelites entering the Promised Land. We pray in Christ's name and for His sake. Amen. Now, this morning I'm going to be taking some observations from the book, Victorious Christian Living by Alan Redpath. Victory is an exciting concept. We all love to win. Colleges and universities pay literally millions of dollars to ensure that they would win the athletic contest course, the greatest winner of all times is Jesus Christ. And when He returns, there will be the greatest victory celebration of all times. Here in the fourth and fifth chapters of the book of Joshua, we see that the Israelites, after hundreds of years of discouragement and defeat, are finally going to attain the victory. Remember that God's channel of redemption in the Old Testament is the nation. God is working through the nation. But the nation has been in bondage for 400 years. But no more. When Moses led the people out of Egypt across the Red Sea, they were liberated from slavery to the Egyptians. When we confess our sins and acknowledge Jesus Christ as our Savior, We are liberated from bondage to the world, the old nature, and the devil. But after crossing the Red Sea, God's people had wandered in the wilderness of unbelief, carnality, and spiritual defeat. Now after 40 years, God's covenant promise to Abraham about the homeland for his people is finally being fulfilled. So in our story, in the book of Joshua, today is a great day. Israel has crossed the Jordan River and now are entering the promised land of victory and spiritual rest. Question, which comes first, the victory or the spiritual rest? The victory comes first. There are many battles to be fought Dead ahead lies the walled city of Jericho. Beyond that, there are many citadels that have to be conquered. So the battle for the promised land is beginning, and it looks like it's shaping up to be a long, protracted battle. But we have the promise. No man will be able to stand before you. I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. The war for Canaan is beginning in our story. Our battle has already begun. Ours is a spiritual battle, but there are many things that we can learn from Joshua's battle. Great men in history have studied Joshua's tactics and have emulated them in battles throughout history. That's pretty smart because Joshua got his strategy from God. Couldn't go wrong with that. The first thing that we need to see is that battles and blessings always go together in the Christian life. And the greater the blessing, the greater the battle is going to be against supernatural powers and against uh, the forces of dark evil in this world. Second thing, before we can charge forth to conquer, we have to wait for God's instructions. A difficult thing to do. The Israelites are going to have to wait to hear what God wants to say to them about how to accomplish this thing. That's essential for God's people then and now. We come when we cross the river to Gilgal, a place of remembrance. Now, this area is a a location, it's not a village. It's just an area where they came to. It's a few miles across the river. And if you can see it there, it's very close to Jericho, probably uh, several miles from Jericho. But from the walls of the city, you could see two million Israelites camped out on the desert plains of Jericho. And I'm sure that those people up on the wall wondered, How did that many people get across the Jordan River at flood stage at the widest point of the river? Now, up north of there, the river is coming down through the mountains, but we get down into the plains when it gets down toward Jericho, and this is a wide place to cross the river. Wow, those people must know magic, or they must have a mighty, powerful God. And when the Israelites crossed the Jordan, that put the exclamation point on the fear from a people in the land. Canaanites were shaken in their sandals. In verse 1 of Joshua 5, Now it came about when all the kings of the Amorites, who were beyond the Jordan to the west, and all the kings of the Canaanites, who were by the sea, heard how the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan before the sons of Israel until they crossed, that their hearts melted, and there was no spirit in them any longer because of the sons of Israel. Gilgal became the first military encampment in the Promised Land. And this location became a base camp for future operations. Gilgal was a place where Joshua would come back to after victories, and sometimes after defeat. Do you have a base of operations where you go regularly to get instructions from the Lord on the battle? The place would usually need to be, the base would usually need to be a place where you go to read God's Word, to listen, to meditate, to pray, to think about how God wants us to fight the battle that we are in. And we have to keep a clear channel of communication from the battle lines to the base. Don't let anything get in your way of consistent daily meeting with the captain of the Lord's host to get the strategy for that day's battle historical events, we're going to see some things take place that are very significant in the life of the Israelites. Six things we want to look at and then God is going to do something really big. First, instead of a 21-gun salute, we have a 24-stone memorial. In fact, two 12-stone memorials. God told Joshua to select 12 men one from each tribe. I'm assuming that these are going to be big burly guys because he tells them to go out into the dry riverbed where people are still crossing, where the ark is and the priests are, and pick up some river stones, one man with each stone, I'm assuming maybe a hundred pounds, what a man could pick up, pretty good sized stones. Puts it on his shoulder, he hauls it out to the base camp, and they build a memorial. And from that point on, when anybody passes by there, when they come back to Gilgal, they can remember that the mighty power of God parted the Jordan River. Then he told the same 12 guys to get some land stones and take them out to the middle of the river where the ark was, in the dry riverbed at that point, and build that memorial right there in the middle of the river. Now why would he do that? Because the water is going to cover those stones pretty quickly. As soon as the priests step out of the water, step out of the riverbed, the water is coming back in. Well, the Jordan is low at some times, and when it was low, you could see those stones. And you would wonder, and children would wonder, what's a pile of rocks out in the middle of the river? Now, land stones would probably be rough and jagged, River stones would be more round and smooth. So either set of stones would have looked out of place where they, sat, where they were set. In Geneva, Switzerland, a lake near Geneva contains a stone with an inscription. It says, when you can read this, weep. And what it meant was that when the water was low enough in that lake, there would be drought conditions of a severe drought in the land, and it was time to weep. But these stones were for rejoicing. Rejoicing in God's provision. Rejoicing in God getting them across that river. Has anybody here ever been in a crowd of a million people? Now that's a lot of people. Where was it? In Europe, yes. People like to get together over there, a soccer match or something. Uh, now two million people that is a lot of people. And yet, God gets them all safely across the water there. Second, the covenant sign of circumcision was reinstated. And we've got the memorial at the camp and the second memorial in the riverbed. Uh, by the way, you can see the instructions in verses 3 and verse 5 in Joshua 4. And you can see the fulfillment in verses 8 and 9. Now the Lord reinstates the covenant sign of circumcision in verses 2 through 5. We won't read those verses, but the older generation had died off in the wilderness, except for Joshua and Caleb. And those who had been born had not yet been circumcised, so now God's covenant is being restored. There are times when we are bubbling over with enthusiasm. We are anxious to get in, charge forth, and do the battle. But God says, wait Can you imagine the impatience of the Israelites? Verse 12 says the manna is finished now. No more manna. And I'm guessing the Israelites are thinking, hey, we need to get on into H-E-B in Jericho and find out about getting some groceries. Can you think about feeding two million people? How in the world are they going to do that when the manna ceases? But God says circumcision first. Can you imagine the reaction of the people when Joshua told them that? What? Now? Are you sure you got that straight? That's exactly right. Why circumcision now? We find the answer in the New Testament book of Acts chapter 7 and verse 8. Stephen the martyr says, God gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision. This was the sign of the Old Testament of the Abrahamic covenant that Abraham's descendants were going to inherit the land. Now before any battle begins, the men have to have the sign of the covenant. But just like the ceremonial cleansing from the law of Moses, it has a deeper meaning. The Pharisees never could not get it in Jesus' day. Deuteronomy 30 and verse 6, Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants... To love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul in order that you may live. And then some good news for us, Romans two twenty-eight. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, neither is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly. Remember the inner cleansing of sanctification? That's the important thing, what's going on in the heart. And circumcision is that which is of the heart by the letter, by the Spirit, not by the letter. And His praise is not from men, but from God. There's a good reason I believe we can learn from the Old Testament. Some people say the Old Testament doesn't count. I say we are children of Abraham. Paul says the same thing in Galatians 3-7. And now... For the one who has professed faith in Christ, the outward sign is baptism. Exactly right, baptism. Sometimes after we have delayed for a long time and we're ready to go and the Lord sends the signal, wait, and we don't want to wait, but God has some valuable lessons for us to learn while we're waiting. I'm sure we could have testimony this morning of lessons learned while waiting. It's one of the most difficult things in the Christian life or any other life. Other people have to wait too. If you've ever been in the military, you understand about that. We talked about the three-day wait where we got Rahab saved, we got Reuben and Manasseh separated, and we got the people cleansed, those people sanctified. And we mentioned at that time that there are dozens of verses that tell us there are great benefits For those who wait on the Lord, you will rise up with wings as eagles. You will run and not be weary, walk and not faint. Next, the people celebrated the Passover. Circumcision had to take place before the Passover because it was the sign of the covenant. In the same way, baptism has to precede the Lord's Supper because it's the sign of the covenant. Now watch very carefully the date in these verses. Joshua 4.19 Now the people came up from the Jordan on the tenth day of the first month and they camped in Gilgal on the east border of Jericho. What happened on this precise day forty years earlier? Let's find out. Exodus 12.2 This month shall be the beginning of months for you. It is to be the first month of the year to you. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month they are each one to take a lamb for themselves, <clears throat> Excuse me, according to their father's households, a lamb for each household. And you know what's going to happen to that lamb. Verse 6, And you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel is to kill the lamb at twilight. And the blood of the lamb is going to go on the doorpost and on the lentil. And the death angel is going to come through and pass over that house. Now watch this back in Joshua chapter 5 and verse 10. While the sons of Israel were camped at Gilgal, they observed the Passover on the evening of the 14th day of the month on the desert plains of Jericho. The Bible is very precise because God is very precise. Well, good news, the people then ate the first produce of the land. And on the day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate some of the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain. So much for H-E-B, everything you need is in the field and in the orchard. Now, isn't that amazing how God orchestrated that? You remember the mudslide theory? That there was a mudslide upriver, and God just happened to come across the time when there was a mudslide? Well, I wonder if God was up there in heaven thinking, uh, now let's see, there's going to be a mudslide on the 10th, uh, ninth day of the month, so maybe we can get all our people down there, and at the same time the mudslide happens, we can get them across so they can celebrate the Passover when they first come into the promised land. That's not the way it is at all. God has planned it. He will do it. And so now we see no more manna after Forty years. There's our verse there on the day after the Passover. They ate some of the produce of the land, the unleavened cakes and parched grain. And then the manna ceased on the day after they had eaten some of the produce of the land so that the sons of Israel no longer had manna. But they ate some of the yield of the land of Canaan during that year. No more manna after 40 years. Now, that is a long time. Some people are rejoicing. They were already tired of that man of the first two weeks. Mom is probably saying, "Uh uh-oh, I need to start thinking about what's for dinner tonight. It's been a long sabbatical. We're shifting gears here. And then the last thing, number six, the captain of the Lord's host appeared to Joshua, reassuring him of the presence of the Lord for these battles. So we see a reminder in that to Christians. The two reminders in Joshua's day were circumcision and the Passover. The two reminders for us would be baptism and the Lord's Supper. Now, what are these two ordinances a reminder of? And before we answer that question, let's introduce our next section. You be thinking about the answer. The Way of Victory And here we're coming into the meat of our lesson. Notice this didn't say a way of victory. It says the way of victory. There's only one way of victory in Christian living. This one way is not the way of a freak or a fanatic. It's not just the way of some super Christians or some uh, weird zealots holed up in an ancient monastery. This is the way of victory for every Christian. It's the only path of deliverance if you want the victory won at the cross to really count in your life. Now, what do baptism and the Lord's Supper symbolize first? First, they symbolize the death of the Lord Jesus Christ as He died to pay for our sins. I have a question for you now that I've asked many times. So some of you should be able to get the answer very quickly. Can you name a person besides Jesus born on this earth who was crucified yet is still alive after His crucifixion? Cody. Cody. That's exactly right. Cody is his name. Because Scripture says, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me and the life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself up for me. The way of victory is death. The Lord's Supper and baptism are reminders of death. Christ's death and our death. The way of victory in the Christian life is by crucifixion and death. Let me say that again. The way of victory in the Christian life is by crucifixion and death. How many Christians believe that? How many Christians even know about that? What could that possibly mean? Notice that not only did the ark go down into the riverbed, the priest went down and every single person in the entire nation went down into that riverbed, every last one of them. Alan Redpath says, "...the deepest, most real, most wonderful meaning of Calvary is that not only did Jesus die there for my sins, but I died with Him and in Him. Without a real spiritual revelation to your heart of this, you will never be a victorious Christian. Is that true? And if it is true, what does it mean? I died with Christ and in Christ. Well, let's see if it's true. 2 Corinthians 5.14 For the love of Christ constrains us, controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died." That would be all the sheep. Non-believers didn't die with Christ at Calvary. That's only the sheep who died with Him. We were crucified with Christ. Romans 6, we see it again. Verse 6, "...For we know that our old self was crucified with Him, so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Hallelujah. Because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. We're talking about spiritually speaking now. Alan Redpath tells of a missionary lady who was a missionary in China, and she came back to the large annual missions conference at Keswick in England. And so when she was there, She relayed that before she went to China, a friend of hers said to her, "'What on earth are you going to bury yourself in China for? You'll never stand the climate. You'll be dead in six months.'" A cheerful greeting for a missionary. But the missionary turned to her friend and said, "'My dear girl, I want you to know that five years ago I died. When Jesus called me to China, I bowed my head at the cross.'" and died to everything except God and China. Not only were we crucified with Christ, we were also buried with Him. Romans 6.4 We were therefore buried with Him through baptism into death. And Jesus stated in John 12.24 Truly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground, into the earth and dies, it remains by itself alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. The wheat is dead and buried, just as we are if we're going to bear much fruit. Now, what does this mean to you and me? You might be called on to be martyred, but I doubt it. Besides, people are killed in this world indiscriminately every day. You will be called upon to give up plans and preferences, dreams and schemes... You might be called upon to give up friends and family and fond pleasures and finances and freedom of schedule for a greater freedom of heart. All you parents understand about freedom of schedule that you have to give up for a greater love in your heart. Did I mention reputation and self-esteem, whatever that is? God may call on you to give up many things if you're willing to be crucified and take up your cross daily and follow Him. Well, ouch, you say. Where's the hope in all of that? All I wanted was the abundant life and heaven thereafter. Well, here's the hope. Psalm 37, 4. Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. Now, He might be changing some desires. We certainly understand that. Well, Gilgal was not only a place of remembrance, it was a place of resurrection. Romans 6, 4. We were therefore buried with Him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. If we have been united with Him like this in His death, we will certainly also be united with Him in His resurrection. So far, we have been crucified with Christ. We have been buried with Christ. And now, praise God, we are resurrected with Christ. Colossians 2.12 Having been buried with Him in baptism and raised with Him through your faith in the power of God who raised Him from the dead. Now, God is getting ready to do something really big at Gilgal. Gilgal means rolled away. The stone covering Christ's tomb was rolled away by the angel and the tomb was empty. Christ was not there. But something else was absent for good for Christ. And that was the shame and humiliation and disgrace and indignity and degradation of the way that Christ had been treated here on this earth. The reproach was rolled away. Now, look what happens in Joshua's day. Gilgal means rolled away. Joshua 5, 9. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. So the name of that place is called Gilgal to this day. Gilgal sounds like the Hebrew for to roll. So this didn't mean that they gave a new name to Gilgal. It means that they gave new meaning to, to the name Gilgal, rolled away. Specifically, as long as Israel was wandering around and dying out in the wilderness, the reproach of Egypt was still hanging over their heads. Because that's what the Egyptians said. Your God has taken you out in the desert to kill you. And we see that in Exodus 32.12. Moses is reminding God about that. Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did He bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Same thing in Deuteronomy 9.28. Because He hated them, He has brought them out to put them to death in the wilderness. But praise God, at Gilgal, the nation has been resurrected and the reproach has been lifted. Romans 6.11 in the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Your reproach has been rolled away. But that's not all. Ephesians 1.19 And what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe, according to the working of His great might that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority, and power, and dominion. Guess what? Next chapter, 2 verse 4. But God being rich in mercy, because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with Him, and seated us with Him in heavenly places, In Christ Jesus. Here's the foundation of your liberty and victory in Christ. We have been crucified with Christ. We've been buried with Christ. We have ascended with Christ. We are seated with Him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We are identified with Christ far above all principalities and powers. When you are in Christ, when you have the ungrieved ministry of the Holy Spirit in your life, principalities and powers can't go any further than God would allow them to go, maybe to test our faith. Now, anyone who is in Christ and who is truly regenerate can never lose their position in Christ, in my opinion. But they can go back across the river, and that's the sad thing back into the wilderness where even as a Christian, they would suffer shame and frustration and discouragement and defeat. The key to victory in the Christian life is death. Death to the self-life. Instead of, Lord, bless my plan, it's, Lord, what is your plan? James tells us about that in James 4, verse 13. Now listen, you who say today or tomorrow we'll go to this or that city, spend the year there, carry on business and make money. Why, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it's the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. Now, who has the greatest struggle with dying to self? I'm going to guess from what I've seen, it would be... Teens, teenagers, because their culture is so against any concept like this. It's not die to self. It's not be under authority, God or anybody else. It's assert yourself and show your own authority. But also I think dads struggle with this. And the greater authority dad has to exercise in his job, the more difficult it may be to give up and submit yourself to Christ and follow His plan. Something we all have to work on. Is there anybody here this morning who would say you're dissatisfied with the Christian life that you've been living in 2014? You would say that your sins have been forgiven and you know you have eternal life in Christ, but you just haven't reached that level of spiritual inheritance that you know God has given for the abundant life that He wants us to live here on this earth. If you've been set free from sin and you're still wandering in the wilderness, in a sense, here's a ticket to get back across the river. It's death to self. Go into the garden with Christ and say, not my will, but Thy will be done. I'll close with this quote. Frank Houghton wrote a book about the life of Amy Carmichael. It's called Amy Carmichael of Donover. In it, he recorded what Amy wrote about a group of missionaries who were, quote, unfair and curiously dominating in certain ways and words. One day, Amy says, I felt the eye in me rising hotly. And quite dearly, so dearly, I can show you the very place on the floor of the room where I was standing when I heard it, Quite dearly, the word came, seeing it a chance to die. To this day, that word is life and release to me, as it has been to many others. Seeing this, which stirs up all you most wish were not stirred up, seeing it a chance to die to self in every form and accept it for just what it is, a chance to die. End of quote. My money, my movies, my music, my rights, my fashion statement, my social life, my boyfriend, my bad attitude. Here's the only way to victory. Give it all up and trust in Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for the example of a man like Joshua and Caleb who believed that you could get every one of those people into the promised land safely. And it's hard for us to comprehend a move of that magnitude without trucks to all supplies and all kinds of other things that we would need. But we know that you are the God of the impossible. Lord, it is difficult for us to stay on that cross and to die to our own plans and ideas But we know that your understanding is infinite. We read it this morning. And we pray that we might lean not to our own understanding, but trust in you with all of our hearts. I would pray for someone here this morning who has been out in the wilderness, that you might help them get back across the river and get into that land of victory and spiritual rest. The battle rages on. But we thank you, Lord, that through your Spirit we have peace, we have harmony, we have a tranquility of order in our hearts. I pray for anyone who is struggling in the Christian life, and I pray, Lord, that they might be willing to meet with you and to look into your word and find that peace that passes understanding. Thank you as the great Creator. Thank You for this beautiful world that You have given us. And thank You most of all for salvation in Christ. And we pray in His name. Amen.